Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, Up in the Air. Work of Fiction. Dr. Kim Perkins, here with my colleagues, Bud Cadell, and I'm Paula Sizek. We're members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that helps teams adopt new ways of working. Every month, we take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations. What works, what doesn't, and most importantly, we talk about the simple tools they and you, our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better. Ahead be spoilers. Spoilers. So if you haven't seen Up in the Air and don't want to hear what happens before we get there, you may want to put this on pause. Why did you click this? Yeah, why did you click this? It's been like 10 years. Yeah, but I think that's enough time for everybody to really see Turns out he's a ghost. (laughs) Wrong movie. (laughs) I did not see the dinosaur twist coming, I'll just say. Oh, come on. You could have seen that. It was pretty (sighs) obvious, Kim. Get with it. Bud, why don't you give us a little synopsis of this movie? All right, I'll set the stage. You jump in and correct me. So we're talking about a consulting company that downsizes for you, that shows up to fire people when you are too chicken to. I think they're going through a transition, Bud. Let's use the correct nomenclature. <laughs> a transition. A life the transition. Correct nomenclature. Um, and so the it all begins because uh, a hot new hire, an up-and-comer, a smart, smart person, uh... What's her name again? <laughs> Natalie. Natalie Keener. Natalie, Natalie Keener. Keener. Sorry, Miss Keener. She introduces Ms. herself. Keener. Is invented a way to fire people through a, a remote screen. And George Clooney, Ryan, got that one, uh, challenges her and takes her on the road to teach her how to do their job. And along the way, they learn a lot about themselves. Do they, though? That actually is a really interesting question, whether they do or don't. So what's this movie about, Kim, really? You know, really, this is a movie about change. This is about personal change, and it's also about organizational change. So considering the fact that that's one of the main things that we work on, I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation around this. Yeah. I mean, just to take a step back, just like first impressions of rewatching this movie, um, you know, I, I knew about this movie before I ever watched it because everyone said, oh, that's your job, right? And that's your life. You live in an airplane. And that's what you do. So, it's, and but is it what you do? No, it's not at all what we do. Um, yeah, that, that didn't sound very convincing. <laughs> it's not like at all you. what we do. Is that better? <laughs> um, no, I we actively, in fact, get in front of our audiences and the people we work with and say we're not those consultants. We're not here to decimate the organization on behalf of the company. We're here to figure out what you want to do differently in your job and help you through an actual organizational strategic or cultural change. Um, but not, we're not there to show up for the 30 seconds it takes to fire someone in a very robotic manner and then parachute out. We also don't wear suits. That's, That's true. true. 
you know, I'm, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but when you take a look at the movie, they're always wearing suits and you can see when they enter a room, everybody else in the company gets this look of fear on their face. And so in order to reduce that fear and that stranger danger, that's actually one of our, I would say, cultural norms is we're all very, uh, I don't want to say casual. I mean, well, it's like California casual. Right. Yeah, it's but, just mostly because I don't look as good as George Clooney in a suit. George Clooney can wear a suit. I'll I, just say I look like at a kid, like a kid at a bar mitzvah, <laughs> like wearing his dad's suit. Muzzle top. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, oh, go ahead. For, uh, for for me, it's actually an interesting movie because before I saw this movie, I actually this was many years ago now, but I had a boss and he said, "You remind me of Natalie Keener." Which, I mean, I was... I and was, how did you take that? Well, I didn't know anything because I hadn't seen the movie at that point. But then when I saw the movie, I was like, oh, yeah, I can I can definitely see you why fresh-faced, he, young, he said that. smart upstart. Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, and I was talking about things like localism. So mm. it, it, it was oh, that was the most Global. painful moment because I've sat through that presentation <sighs> at least 20 times. Yeah. <laughs> Glocal. We, yeah. I, I did that. Yeah. Can you give a little background on glocal? Global and local. I The other uh, phrase I keep hearing is fidgetal is the new one. No. Digital. Physical no. digital. Stop trying to make fidgetal happen. It's not going to happen, bud. I don't. Some very nice people are trying to make it happen. <laughs> so I wish them luck. <laughs> What about you, Kim? What did you think about the movie? Or what was your experience? Yeah, you know, I've had the similar experience of having people think that that's what I do, especially since I'm a psychologist. People think that I must be there to, you know, hold people's hands for difficult transitions and or make those transitions happen for them. But you don't. You slap their hands away. I, it's exactly what I do. You've heard me do it. It's like, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's, you guys You guys don't want to be there. No, no, no. It's Wait, there's no physical violence at Nobel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, for the record. For the record, no physical violence and and really no emotional violence, too. Yeah, because we just, no, I'll just no be clear violence. that we're not in that kind of business. Like, for example, one of our tenants is we we try to avoid reorgs whenever possible yeah. so that we don't end up being part of the layoffs and downsizing. That honestly doesn't work very well for people in the long run. It's like a, a Band-Aid in a lot of ways or sort of a first choice in a lot of ways, but it doesn't um, necessarily lead to fantastic outcomes over the length of the company. Yeah, we often get called in after those consultants. That's and true. We have to manage their the trauma that they've created. Yeah, we're kind of the hands-on in there in the trenches with you kind of consultants, rather than the fly-in and yeah. the seagull kind of management consultants. Yeah, and to be honest, there's two reasons. One, exactly what you said around the strategic benefit of doing those things is very limited. Reorgs very rarely actually help or turn the create the outcomes that you're looking for. And the second is, I don't want to be that asshole no like I, I don't, if we I wanted don't, to be that asshole we'd be going being in that being that asshole but we're being here doing yeah. this other thing and maybe those assholes need to exist but i don't want to be one of those can we can we stop this conversation i'm just, <laughs> I'm just getting visual images in my head okay like, okay wanna... got it yeah okay different tack then different tack thank so we, you we've talked about the um the movie and broad, broad strokes in terms of what um transitions that this is all standard on so in terms of this being a movie about change, there's a couple of really key scenes, I thought. So what, what you mentioned earlier was that um, Natalie Keener, the younger person, comes in and had, there's a whole new way of rolling out, um, oh, excuse me, a new whole new way of um, doing the work that this company does, which is firing people. And I'd like to talk a little bit about how that work is rolled out. 
Yeah. What do we see when they're introducing this change in the company? Well, it's this big secretive monumental moment where they pull people off the road and say, you have to show up, give you no context for it. Yeah. So they're, so they're already, they've got their, their whole workforce out there. They've given them like a, we need to talk kind of message. Yeah. And they put someone in front of them that they don't know. They've never mm -hmm. seen before. It almost feels like their situation, how they, you know, they show up randomly. You've never met this person before. And then she runs through like the world's easiest software demo with someone <laughs> who's in the office. And they're like, okay, from now on, this is exactly what we're going to do. And it is a hard punctuation. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because you hear Jason Bateman's character. He's like the, he's the boss of George Clooney in this movie. And he's, he talks about how he's been working on this. And initially he was hesitant, but Anna Kendrick's character really won him over. And so now he wants to see how it is. And so there you see the real difference between what the leader's experience of change is and the people experiencing change, right? The rest of the team. Mm. And so we like to talk about leaders. Uh, when, we're, when we're talking to leaders, we like to talk about that difference, right? They have been thinking about this and working with whatever this change is for some period of time. And the announcement just feels like the end of it, right? It is the capstone of all the work they've been doing. So it's not a real shock for them. But for people hearing it the first time, yeah, it can be a, a real change in their in their lives and their in how they work and so a lot of what we do with leaders is getting them to realize that what they've been doing is not the same experience of their employees so how do you ease it in so that the employees feel like oh this isn't an abrupt shift in how we're doing things right it's kind of like that analogy with like when you're breaking up with your significant other right you've been thinking about this for a long time this is news to them so you're at very different parts of the cycle is it though? Is it really oh, the first time? I'm sorry. Yes, I'm not. <laughs> like, don't don't they know? Aren't there signs? And the, but it's the same at work. There's sometimes signs that something is going to happen, but it's not always clear what or how. And it still is. You still have to deal with that shock. Also, it's just really bad strategy to to have a software demo and say like, oh, we're just going to do this from now on. Everyone's going to do this. Right? That really bothered me. Yeah. Because, you know, so much of what we do and what we teach is to really roll things out in a much more iterative way. Right. What they do is they say, we've already, I've made a plan. I've backed it up with probably a large expenditure for software. And I pulled you all in off the road, off of your other assignments where you're producing, yeah. you know, income. And we're, we're just going to do this. And, and to me, that's sort of like everything we ask people not to do. Right. People always think or want software to be the solution. It would they be do. really easy if you could just apply a new app or a piece of software and it would take care of all of those problems. But the problem is that people are the ones using the apps and they need to go through a transition period. It's true. And honestly, I think I, you know, in the work that we've done, I think the most entrenched fighting I have seen about change has been about what software we're going to use for this. Yeah what program we're going to use that there's nothing there's that's like nothing to get people upset yeah we we had a client once who they had a you know they had a culture of people who gossiped a lot and um and it was a lot through like instant messaging and one day i came in and they i got a random question about like whoa what's communication software do you use and i said oh we we typically use slack and i didn't really think anything of it and the next day i came in and the leader said so we've shut down i am <laughs> and everyone is forced to use Slack. Oh, 
Great. That'll make my job easier. And then there was this giant bullseye painted on my back as like the guy who destroyed like the I am conversations. Yeah. But that also taught me early on in my career that your voice and your statements as a consultant can carry so much weight. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't even really thinking about like why I was being asked this question. I just was like, oh, yeah, we we do this. Yeah. So that implies that that is how one must do. It's, it is important. Yeah. Thinking about that software thing for a minute, I'm thinking about how making a change, you know, what the, what good looks like. And I'm thinking about another client we worked with where they were getting rid of their AOL. They were having chat and they were getting, they were going to retire the, that ability that a lot of people were working on. And so yeah. instead of just saying, guess what, we're not doing that anymore, they put up um, a big picture of the a little AOL running man in the lobby and had everybody like say goodbye to their screen, like say what their screen name was. And it was all, of course, stuff from, you know, when they were 12 in the 90s. So everybody had these ridiculous screen names. And yeah. Nick Knighter is not ridiculous. <laughs> I really, I liked Nick at night. Okay. <laughs> But that gave everybody a chance to kind of, you know, honor the work that's yeah. gone before and, and, and have a moment of, uh, you know, togetherness around it. And then it was much easier to get that done. Yeah, it just recognized a, a common grief. Yeah. A loss. Yeah, a common loss. Yeah. We like to say when you are changing things, you should actually start with the ending, right? You should acknowledge that, hey, we've been doing things for some time this way, and now it's coming to a close, and we should honor and respect that and, and celebrate it. And so I think that's a great example, right, of sharing what your screen name was from 20 some odd years ago. Um, then you go through the transition period where you would set out milestones of like, OK, this is what we would expect to see. This is how we're going to manage the change. And then finally, you would get to the beginning, right, the new way of doing things. And that should also be a celebratory period. It is an opportunity for you to recognize all the great work that your people are doing um, and the changes that they have been going through. Yeah, exactly. A, a three-part process there, and not just what so many people do, which is, hey, we came up with something better. This is better. Do, go do it. Because it's not going to feel like it's better. It's going to feel like the old way that we've worked so hard on and invested in so much has been, you know, is real stinker. We spoke to one company that awards a golden toothbrush award. It's not actually a toothbrush made out of gold, much to my dismay. Darn it. But what they do is they actually seek out people who have done something different. They've changed a behavior for the better, and they are recognized for it. And when you win this golden toothbrush award, part of the responsibility that comes along with it is that you have to go around interviewing other people to find the next winner of the golden toothbrush award. So it really encourages this culture of, of change, of behavioral adaptation, and rewarding people for being willing to do things different. Mm. That's, that's really good in a, um, because we, you know, this movie treats this one giant organizational change at a time and, and that's how a lot of times people think about it is that we're going along in the status quo then we're going to make a huge change and now it's all going to be different right. um when we find that really in in the situations everybody our clients and ourselves find themselves in it's really more like continuous change all the time yeah many small changes and nudges and pivots which i think is why it's so easy to forget those steps you know, yeah. even I, as the founder of Nobel, goof this up constantly. Which oh, is, yeah, you did just goof that up. I remember. <laughs> yeah, I goof this up constantly because you think you you have to move at a certain speed, and it's easy. It's so easy to forget that you have done this reasoning and rationale, and people haven't been with you on that journey. 
And also you just assume that people have the vantage point that you do. Yeah, you assume that they're seeing it from where you're seeing it, but you have a very different perspective than they do and also a different responsibility for what you're looking out after. Yeah. I'd actually like to look a little bit at Anna Kendrick's character because she is the new upstart in this meeting. She hasn't been she hasn't int- been introduced to the team before. She's new to them. And she's new and excited and she's got this idea that's going to revolutionize the industry. But she hasn't taken really any time to talk with the people who have been doing this for ages, potentially decades. And so this is another problem that we often see. People assume that they have the right solution, that, well, people just have been doing it the wrong way because they didn't know any better. And that clearly when you give them the right answer, they will they will lodge you. They will go, oh, thank you for saving us from this terrible old way that we've invested so much time and effort and making as good as we can. Yeah. But as you see from, in particular, Ryan's perspective, that's not the case. He says, you know, I want you to like actually experience what it's like to fire people in person. This is the most personal situation that you are ever going to enter. So before you try to revolutionize my business, I'd like to know that you actually know my business. Yeah. There are also just some weird gender dynamics going on in that scene, though, that felt... Okay, yeah. that's this. Okay, so this scene is the one where... Um... He's heard the announcement. Yeah, and he's and interrogating her. He's interrogating her in in the boss's office. And so to to my mind, what I see there is that he's having a, the worst reaction of for being kind of quote unquote fired of anybody he's had to fire. Right. Yeah, he's feeling. So when we talk about change, we talk about grief and loss, that change triggers those things. And I was thinking we... We look at, you know, six or eight different kinds of loss, and he's triggering, like, almost every kind. So there's loss of control. He no longer he, – he was, like, you know, a pro at this and well-recognized inside his organization, and suddenly he's not. Loss of pride because did his work matter before he came into this situation? Loss of narrative. He, like, is the author of his entire life, and he talk, like it's we're opened with voiceover and things like that about him and his life. Um, and loss of competence. Yeah, he's put a lo- he's put a lot of work into really mastering his craft. Right, and he's designed his entire life around that mastery of craft. So of course it's going to be there's a huge amount of identity threat in there. Yeah, I mean considering that this is that um, Natalie is basically coming in and they're setting fire to the life that he has built for himself. Right, and they're and just treating it as though this is a completely rational thing to do. And of course, from our perspective now, we're like, yeah, that's probably inevitable that you're going to have things move to an online situation. You know, in 10 more years, it'll be an inevitable AI situation, perhaps. Right. But right now, that the loss of the um, really rich traditions and the human connection and the slow movement of this is, um, is a really huge loss for that character. Right. And he's not wrong especially when he just gets up and says you can't fire me i'm going to go talk to my boss and like no you have to stay there you're just a screen yes like certainly making good points but in such a belligerent yeah he's angry and we we're just talking about loss as grief and and fear but anger is one of the things that really come up for all of the people who are getting fired in this and especially for ryan bingham yeah yeah one thing i do want to call out in terms of rollout so there's there's actually two types of rollout in the scene that we're talking about it is just the news, right? It is, mm-hmm. hey, there is 
new software. We want you guys to all know about it. We're going to start implementing it, right? But when it comes to actually implementing the software and trying it out, I think they do a pretty good job. And mm. I don't know, Kim, if we're going to... Yeah, say more about that. What's that look like? Okay. So when they actually roll out the software, they do it when they're still there, right? They actually go to a location. They're expecting to go ahead and do their standard in-person firing, but instead they are put in a separate room from the person and they, they conduct the firing through this interface. But they're right there. So, so that they can uh, they can observe what's happening in real time. As, uh, so uh, not in like an offline 2,000 miles away. Exactly. Yeah. And if something were to go desperately wrong, then they would be able to go back into the room and ameliorate the situation. Otherwise, you know, it would just be one person and they could make changes before continuing on to the, the next one. And we call this prototyping or skateboarding, right? So it is the idea that instead of, okay, immediately switching over, all of our firings are going to take place through this this interface. Untested um, interface. Yeah. Mm. Um, you actually test it out. And so you see what is working, what's not. And you do it in a way that's not going to break the business. So again, this one guy gets fired. Arguably, yes, terrible, terrible for him. Um, but from a... Arguable? <laughs> well, let, let, let's let's talk. Let's come back to that. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's gonna go build an empire. Yeah. <laughs> my point is, what is my point? Uh, no, my my point is that. No, hold on. I really actually have to think about this. <laughs> Your can, point is that the can, implementation is really not bad. The, the, that what they're doing is they are doing some, even though they, they kind of botched the communication part in the beginning, they are rolling it out in a sensible way in that they're prototyping. They've, they're, they've got um, some bedwidth for testing there. They could, they, that guy is still there. They could ask him follow-up questions. They're not just doing one and done the way it looked like they were totally going to do early yeah. on. And it's unclear from the movie, at least it was unclear to me, whether that was the plan all along or if Ryan was able to speak to his boss and and able to convince him to do like a trial period. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because the scene we were just talking about where he is um, pushing back on um, Natalie's plan in the boss's office. What's the boss's name again? Do you remember? Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman, <laughs> boss Jason. So when he's doing that, he's really trying to bring as his power and social capital that he's accrued as being the the exemplar of this art of firing people to see if they can change, uh, roll back the tide of change, yeah. which is, you know, and he's doing that personally, but he's also in a very meta way doing that by the things he says where he's like, you can't fire me. Only one person can fire me and they're not doing it, you know, so they're doing, he's doing the power plays that people do in real life. Yeah. Can I maybe take a digression and do say, it. I thought Jason Bateman's character was actually a pretty good boss. He didn't get all, he was unflappable. He didn't get all up in the details of this. He was really trying to make the right call here. Aside from the terrible rollout though, yeah, instead of saying, right. Hey, we're going to start a pilot mm -hmm. of this program. Let's talk about your concerns. Like, I'm assuming you're going to be concerned about this. All this, like, we're just, we're going to trial this. It may only work in certain contexts. We'll need your help. Yeah, because what uh, that that would be better. Because I'm thinking about all those guys, you know, unlike George Clooney's character, a lot of them are going to be really happy that they're home from the road. And they'll be like, honey, guess what? More time with the kids. And they're right. like, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. So aside from the rollout and the communications plan, which I've heard not all leaders are great at, you know, I, I don't know who said that, but it's it, was, it was somebody. Um, but I think that overall, Jason Bateman's character, first of all, he actually does give Natalie opportunities to grow. He says he, he pairs her with an expert, George Clooney's character, Ryan, um, and says, go learn, go actually try this out. Like he's, he's open to new ideas. Mm -hmm. He listens to the concerns from his employees. When Ryan does complain, he, he's willing to make accommodations. Um, and ultimately he, he does listen to feedback. So I think that's totally true. I agree. We've seen worse bosses on film and TV. Nonstop. We've seen worse bosses. Well, I think if he was a worse boss, then you couldn't watch like the naked emotional reactions from George Clooney because you could easily like find fault in his boss. But because his boss kind of played a neutral role with like some characteristics, like he was a little quirky, mm -hmm. but there wasn't, I think if you had a really bad boss above him, you would look at this whole situation far differently. That's totally true. He was basically allowing, a, there was a lot of psychological safety in that room. And right. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about for a second uh, Ryan's motivational talk? Because I think it yes. has a lot to do with his reaction in that room and just how he copes with change. What's in your backpack? Yeah. Do you feel the straps? <laughs> you feel the straps cutting into my shoulders. I realize, again, with 10 years of hindsight, that this is sort of Marie Kondo before Marie Kondo. <laughs> It yeah. is like if if you don't really care about it, you should get rid of it and you shouldn't care about much. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> less about sparking joy and more about weighing you down. But... So maybe more along the spectrum of Swedish death cleaning. Sure, whatever that is. <laughs> Swedish death cleaning, that's the idea of giving away all your... Is it, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, it's giving, giving away all your stuff before you die rather than leaving it for your heirs to deal with so uh. you get more pleasure out of it you can direct how things go you can have more of a relational atmosphere on this and also that's much less of a hassle for when uh you actually go because nobody wants to do before with i die i shit. plan to buy fifty thousand glass elephants just to make <laughs> someone have to shuffle through them i'm so glad you ended that sentence with elephants <laughs> this isn't that podcast but i, I find it really fascinating because He's arguing for stoicism. He's arguing for like essentialism. There's some Buddhist aspects to detachment that he's arguing mm -hmm. for. Yeah. Which it... to me is like his way of coping with change. Like I actually see him as someone who's kind of afraid of change because mm, yeah. he's like he's become anchorless so that he it doesn't harm him. Yeah, he's so, you know, and I, I can relate because having grown up in a small town in the Midwest, this is a, a message you often get is that all of the basic attachments of life are terrible and will make you have a bad life. They'll be uninteresting. You will not be the caption, captain of your own ship. So let's just get rid of all attachments and then you will float like a happy little bubble through the world, you know. Whoa, that's in really? the Midwest. <laughs> that's a small town. That is opposite of what I would have really? thought. That's, that's been, that was my experience. Is that what the I mean, I, cold does to you? I'll be honest. I made some similar decisions of like, I'm not going to, you know, in my earlier life, I'm not going to be attached to anything. I'm going to go have an interesting life. I am. Um, you know, I, and he really very much gets his like human connection in single servings, like in fight club uh, which is so he's got you know his affairs on the road and he has you know when you're firing somebody you're having you're down in that what really looks like a really heavy duty coaching session when he does it yeah um you that's a very intimate place to be with somebody and so that is his way of getting human connection and also serving in the world 
but it has a very strict time limit and time box around it. Right, exactly. He's in there, he's human for 20 minutes, and mm-hmm. then he's gone. Yeah, he's a, and, and during those 20 minutes, he's a very potent human. Yeah, and like when he goes back home and he clearly had had a relationship with his neighbor and she admits that she's seeing someone now, it just it rolls off his back. Yeah, it's like, oh, all right, never mind. Yeah. Maybe I'm jumping to the end. I mean, I am jumping to the end, but does he really change? When I So when I saw this movie 10 years ago, whenever I saw it, I was really irritated at the end of the movie because I thought you went through this whole narrative journey and like he actually learns like, oh, like there is, it is important to have connections and there are, you know, there are reasons to have a heavy backpack and he, he recognizes like, oh, like maybe his coworker, uh, Natalie wasn't like she made a good decision in getting out of this industry before it destroyed her. But then he's just back on the road again, and he's kind of fine with being by himself. Yeah, and it's it was just extremely frustrating from a narrative perspective for me to see that he didn't really change. And maybe maybe it's different now. I'm like, well, maybe he did change. No, you know, I really struggled with that too because I, you know, this is the hero's journey. Damn it! How is it? You know, <laughs> the character has to come back with the magic elixir, or what are we doing here, right? So so when I was thinking about that, though, I feel like the change that he might have undergone was, okay, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to totally contradict what I'm going to say. So at first, I thought it was maybe that he was accepting that this really was his whole contribution in life. Right. Right. But on the other hand, he kind of had that perspective before, and all that this did was give him a clear idea of what the opposite of that would be, would really feel like, and not just something that he was running from, from being a kid. Right. Yeah, or he could learn, like, you expect that he would learn that, oh, he's making all of these sacrifices for miles, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's giving up connection with humanity for this job, and, like, that's something that's very sad, and, and he should reconsider that. But then the magic elixir, if there is one, right, that he comes back with at the end of the hero's journey is kind of that 10,000 miles, then 10 million miles card. You know, he reached his goal. He achieved that. And that's now an emblem of who he has become. Uh, oh, I think the ending's actually really sinister. Really? Because he he does change. We get to see him change. And then he does the heroic thing by going to see Alex. Mm-hmm. And that goes so badly. The other things that happen that you forget about is, one, he totally, I think he totally lies about the woman mentioning the bridge who ends up jumping off the bridge. Oh, that's right. He does lie about that. Like when a woman kills herself and his boss asks him, do you remember anything about it? And it was a big plot point. They like left the building to talk about it. And yeah. And Natalie was very upset about it. And at the end, he was like, nothing happened. Mm. And then he continues on with his life. So I think there's. It is an ambiguity there. I think he was covering for Alex. Sorry, covering covering Natalie. for Natalie. Natalie. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Actually, I, I think he just didn't want her to get in trouble. I don't know. It's a good question. But yeah, like that's the thing. If he realized he was making the sacrifice, I would expect him to be more upset, downtrodden, heroic, like something to have an emotion about it. But yeah. at the end, he's just like, all right, well that that happened, but now it's back to normal. Yeah, and he, and again, his only interaction with Natalie afterwards is super impersonal, even though it's heroic. Like writing yeah. her the letter of recommendation is like, it's a way to get her out of his backpack, though. 
Mm-hmm. He like writes a yeah. note, passes it on. They're not going to see each other again. You don't get a sense of that. Yeah, yeah. That's his, his uh, he's helping her embrace change like he's helping everybody else. Yeah. I think it's like a traumatic ending. I think he goes and realizes that he's been, he may have changed, but it, it, it penalized him because Alex is married. I, I think, I don't know. I see a lot of trauma mm. that potentially could like course correct you back to the original state that you were yeah, in. Yeah, that he tried the other way to live like a normal human and it totally didn't work. So so is this actually a movie arguing against change, right? Because he tries to change and that was a terrible mistake, right? And then the organization tries to change by implementing new and technology. And right back. And they go back. So it's actually ultimately a movie about stasis. Yeah, and she even even Natalie goes back to the company that she was interviewing with before she moved to Omaha with this dude, who, by the way, is Ashton Kutcher in an uncredited role. Really? Yes, that was him. That was the, <sighs> that was a boyfriend. I discovered that while researching this on Wikipedia. Funny. Yeah, but yeah, uh, I guess yeah. Isn't that interesting, right? Because his his whole job is about helping people accept this change and reframe this change, and yet everything in the movie is about stasis. Guys, are we doing this all wrong? Should we actually be promoting stasis within organizations? <laughs> That'll help them change. <laughs> like, just keep sailing. Wow. All right. Just I guess. I guess that's where we end this podcast. Uh, you know, like, that's no iceberg. I guess. Just keep going. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a movie about change. To Kim's earlier point, but I think there's just so many different kinds of change, and I actually kind of respected the movie that every change wasn't positive. And that people's varied reaction, uh, you know, I, I appreciated the realism there. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, even on the organizational level, we, you know, everybody knows, quote unquote knows, right, that organizational changes are not very successful and don't work and cause all this chaos, et cetera, et cetera. And yet more recent research has shown that actually when people make a, a, do a good change, they may not get 100% of what they're looking for, but they do get some things that are worth having yeah. and that it's always a discommoding process. I mean, there's no way to, be change, to make a change and be comfortable. No. So, so do you believe George Clooney's speech that he always gives to people when he's firing them? I, my question was, does he believe his speech? So what's his speech again? Well, we'll probably edit this in because it sounds better coming from George Clooney than me. Just but Pause. <laughs> George Clooney's speech is about how essentially you are at the brink of opportunity. Yes, you're getting fired and this is an unhappy moment, but think about all the people who have faced these challenges before, right? Empires were built and 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 victories and conquests made at just this moment. And so it is up to you to seize the opportunity and possibly realize a dream that you had sacrificed earlier for a job that pays the bills. So that's a great opportunity to talk about another scene in the movie, this time with J.K. Simmons. Big fan. Big fan of J.K. Oh, J. J. Jonah Jameson? True. Sure. Justin Counterparts, which was unfortunately canceled, but let's not talk about that. Um, so he's being fired in this scene, and he reacts with, an immediate loss of control and familiarity and pride, right? He pulls out the photos of his children and says, what will they think of me? And what will I do now at, the, at this stage of my life? Yeah. And then the answer for him is, oh, go, go back to being a chef because he studied in culinary school. And God I'm, knows that'll help you pay the mortgage. Right. Yeah. 
like I, I struggle I struggle with it because on the one hand George Clooney Ryan Bingham is correct in that when you lose one opportunity it is a chance to do something new and a lot of people do make compromises with their career and getting fired is an opportunity to reconsider and reevaluate and do something new but at the same time firing I think even one of the characters that's getting fired mentions this it is like death right you are losing your family you are losing your sense of identity you are losing a paycheck which is nice to have and so like there is real trauma or there can be trauma involved in in losing your job yeah, you know, I feel like there's there's a there's a lot here. So it is a con- in some ways it is kind of a glib, convenient way to get people to not react with anger in the moment. And there also is some truth to that mm-hmm. because of his line about um, everyone who's built something amazing has sat in your seat before. I think that might be true. I think that we we are constantly talking in our work about learning from and building on failure, yeah. and we're constantly talking about pivoting and reorienting and continuing to keep that north star in mind and so that setbacks are an opportunity to realign i mean that's when we say that we mean it and we see that in action as well yeah i think the movie challenges us in some ways because it's like the stories that we tell about that over and over again are like this 22 year old was turned down by Facebook and then he went and built WhatsApp or Instagram and now he's worth, and now they bought it for blah, blah, blah. There's a certain survivorship bias in there. Yeah. And the movie presents us and lots of like, we're looking at lots of organizations that look like they're on the decline and Mm -hmm. a lot of people who look like they're like mid to late part of their career. And so then it starts to, to ring like false or glib in that way. I think, you know, they used real people who lost their jobs. Oh, and those, that, those, those were not actors. actors. No, they put out a call. They were filming in like Denver and St. Louis, and they put out a call for people who'd recently been laid off who would want to do a quote unquote documentary about it. Wow. And so a lot of those people, they, they told them to either react like you did when you were firing or like you wished you had done when hmm. you're being fired about your what you were really feeling. And so a lot of those people being fired, that's how that was. I think another complicating factor is that this movie was again released in 2009. And in hindsight, you know that we are just starting the Great Recession. It's it's just at the beginning. Um, and we have a very, very long way to go before we start recuperating jobs and, and getting over that. So some of those people you know aren't going to get jobs, right? Like, that is it. That's Or at least for two or three years. Like, there's mm-hmm. the potential to do serious, serious damage to their and their family's well-being. I think in a in a decent to great economy if you get fired there you know there's another job waiting but in 2008 2009 there weren't that is totally true and you know he had um started this script in the 90s in the and we're originally going to bring it out in like the early 2000s when things were kind of go-go but ended up having had some other opportunities to make other different movies than the one than this one and put it so put it off and it ended up being something that was a lot more timely given the recession going on yeah i mean at least they were a consulting company that also offered placement yeah services it's true that is slightly better (sighs) did did anybody catch the name of the company no i didn't did you yes i did it is called next thank you no (laughs) 
Thank Thank you. Thank you. Next. Uh, (laughs) It is called CTC for Career Transition Counseling. Yeah. Career Transition Counseling. It's just, I think it rings glib because it misses a beat. Because I think they're so concerned with the legality of firing someone that there mm-hmm. isn't that moment that you have to hold space with someone and be like, this is terrible for you and I'm sorry. They have to immediately go from the way they even phrase your position is no longer available is the mm-hmm. way that they phrase it. And then they go immediately to pick up this packet. It's got your great next opportunity in it. There's literally like a whole beat skipped. Right. If we're talking about our three parter, then, you know, if then the idea would be, of course, that we've what we've learned is that in person is better so you can hold space. But how much space are they really holding for people to process? Right. Well, guys, people are like sharks. They just have to keep moving. They they, they use that line in in the movie. And I just thought it was interesting because, okay, so if we're going to if we're going to compare people to animals, we are not like sharks for multiple reasons. Uh, But one of them is that we We are. Wait, right? <laughs> uh, but but we do like we are a collaborative species, right? We we're are, social. yeah. We're we're built to work together and be helpful to to one another. Yeah, we're we're pack animals in a way. So I just thought it was interesting that they were they were making that comparison. But yeah, the reality is people need each other. They do. It is fascinating going back to J.K. Simmons losing his job. One of the things, because you know it's such a loss of narrative, is that he starts to tell this story of his new life now, mm-hmm. where he says, um, well, we'll be really cozy in our new one-bedroom apartment, and I'll you know, be able to hold my daughter as she suffers from asthma because I can't afford her medication. Like He paints this whole catastrophized, but maybe potential reality for himself, um, mm-hmm. and that, that narrative for him can shift so bleakly so quickly because you have it done any of the right steps yeah because there's been no preparation for this right um and also you know that's a that's a common human reaction is that we go to the worst case scenario first because that's part of our general negativity bias where we're looking for threats at all times and we're uh we have we have a tendency to expect the worst and then at the same time you're told this is a rebirth (laughs) so so this is actually a great example of a growth mindset which which ryan bingham does have right (laughs) Uh, we we talk about growth f- mindsets versus fixed mindsets, and a growth mindset says, you know what, failure is temporary. This is an opportunity for me to learn and, not surprisingly, grow from from the mistakes that I've made. Mm-hmm. Whereas a fixed mindset, of course, says, well, I'm just not good at this thing, or you know, I I can't do this. So why bother trying? And Kim, I'm sure you can expand on that. No, that's pretty much true. The idea is whether you're whether you're thinking of of your capabilities and what happens to you as indicative of your identity and personality, and you know, if you're getting fired, then you're a loser. Versus a firing is just a th- a temporary thing that happened to you. So what I think that that Brian Bingham is trying to do is to help push people over into a growth mindset. Hmm. It's a weaponized growth mindset. A it's bit. kind of a convenient growth mindset. Yeah. But yeah. a growth mindset nonetheless. And I think that's partly where, you know, his single serving human connection comes from. Was anybody else reminded of the infamous, infamous Mitt Romney quote? I love firing people. It also means that if you don't like what they do, you can fire them. I like being able to fire people who provide services to me. If, if, if I, you know, if someone doesn't give me the good service I need, I want, it, I want to say, you know, that, that I'm going to go get somebody else to provide that service to me. 
And, uh, and so that's one thing I changed. So this was, I forget which election now. It was, there there have been them. so many. Um, the one with Mitt Romney in it. It was, it was the one where he was also talking about binders full of women. And the dog on top of his car. Yeah. I think it's 2012. Okay. So there, there a question came up. And basic, basically his response was, I love firing people. And people were not happy about this for obvious reasons. I mean, Mitt Romney is you know a very wealthy individual and... I think it came across as maybe a little bit callous. Is that mm. is that the right? Well, word? I mean, he did come from Bane. So <laughs> famous for firing people. Yeah. yeah, but but the point is, it it it's sort of again, Mitt Romney was coming from it as like, if I fire these people, this is an opportunity for the company to survive, right? To to really flourish. If I get rid of the quote unquote dead weight or the people who aren't performing or maybe even holding it back and so i was i was just sort of reminded of of that quote right i love i love firing people and how that comes across differently depending on if you are doing the firing or if you are being the fired yeah you know i mean that that's a really good point because you know as we alluded to earlier in the podcast people often turn to layoffs and firing people as both the first line for performance management in order to lift all boats by getting rid of the dead weight to completely mix metaphors <laughs> you got it though and yep. at the same time people are also looking to layoffs as the first way to economize you yep. know that we when we're thinking oh my goodness we, our profits are down we're not going to be able to do this let's get rid of the people because the people are both expendable or something that we can externalize right we can make it not our problem um and also they are tend to be expensive yeah but the level of trauma that creates and the the chaos it rains and culture and it creates so much chaos you it, it you may think you're getting rid of dead weight but what's happening is that you're actually getting performance deficits by the people who survive this right because it takes so much energy to um, you know, this it, it's so threatening when you do that for people and it takes away so much energy and so much motivation and so much engagement that it's not necessarily worth it. Mm. And so there have been a lot of long-term studies showing that companies are better off of avoiding layoffs if they can and doing that by engaging their employees to help come up with ways to economize and get past this bad patch. Yeah. And there have been a lot of uh, there've been a lot of great studies about companies who have done that, who have gotten all hands on deck and said, "Look, this is we're, in order to not lose anybody from here, this is what we're going to have to do." And people would take pay cuts, take um, temporary um, work fewer hours yeah. and do really what was necessary to keep the company alive. And those are the companies that often um, had the best gains after that. Hmm. There's a big theme of loyalty running mm. through this movie, right? So obviously you have Ryan Bingham collecting points on American Airlines and that's that's a loyalty program. Yeah. That is literally a transactional loyalty program. But you'll also hear a lot of people who are fired getting talked talking about like you know I, I thought we were family I've I've been working here for 17 years and this is how you treat me and so there is a lot of contrast about what loyalty means and, and where it is and belonging yeah, yeah. Wh you know where it's valued there's one line which is just there's nothing cheap about loyalty mm. yeah 
this is where I admit that I I don't use any loyalty programs, and I'm on a plane like once a week. <laughs> and I'm okay. Well, you are missing out on some, but I just I just got a free trip home because yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm I know gonna I'm a crazy it. person, but like when he cuts lines and goes through like the first class line or the Hilton Honors line, you don't want to be that guy. Well, that's when I'm just like, ah, <laughs> put me with the proletariat. You know, until I'm there, <laughs> those frequent flyer programs have been a real thorn in the industry's side in a lot of ways. Mm. So they were invented in like the late '70s, early. 80s and they spread like wildfire because once i think it was like texas airlines started off southwest or not southwest texas. i think there was a texas there's a texas Airlines somewhere mm. that is no longer with us i think it got folded into delta okay but they started off with this program and then of course everybody else had to kind of match it just to keep up yeah, but yeah. they lose a lot of money on those programs yeah. and so there's a lot of long-term analyses think that that was um even though custom consumers love it it's just a giant headache for the airline industry so i should pick one of the airlines i hate most let's say united <laughs> sign up for their loyalty program and drive them into the ground do it bud do it i like loyalty for spite is something <laughs> i can get behind is, it, is there a word for that i feel like there should be a, word. a german it's definitely word, a german word. <laughs> definitely a german word all right well we're getting close to the end of our time are there any other thoughts on up in the air what advice so would wait you... have you been fired we didn't talk about oh this. we didn't talk or about been that through layoffs i've been fired oh really I don't know about you guys tell us more all I... right mine is more complicated you go first i'll go first so i was fired from a bartending job mm. i was working at a little basement rock and roll bar in new york city when i was like 21 i was working in publishing during the day so you know you need a <laughs> night job at that point yeah. um and I had worked my shift till four in the morning, like you do. And then I'd realized that I'd left something on the counter on the bar. And so after walking out of the bar, I walked back in at 4.15 and found the manager with his hand on the absolute bottle and the other hand on the faucet filling the vodka bottle up with water. Oh. You may or may not know that this is a major no-no in, um, with you know the alcohol laws, right? And so suddenly, mysteriously, I was told not to show up to work the next day hmm. because they said I had been stealing from the cash register or something, which I definitely was not oh, doing, geez. but they could, did not want to have me around telling tales. Oh, well, look at you now. And look at you me now. You sat in that chair and empire built. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I once, uh. I've only been, I don't even know if it counts. I once uh, quit a job and gave them two weeks' notice, and then one weekend my boss just dismissed me. Oh, so you, they were like, you can't, I, you can't quit. We're firing. Yeah, you. and I think it was a totally like, no one quits on me. <laughs> it was just told. I was just he, he walked up to me right after lunch and said, "You're dismissed," and I said, "Sure." Did you put your belongings in a box and do the walk of shame? I did actually. I did. It was really strange. And I couldn't figure out if I quit or was fired. <laughs> that's that's the galling part, I'm sure. Yeah. No, no. If you've put in your two weeks, like the the two weeks is a courtesy, but technically the, the employer can let you go at that point. Yeah. So you, you still quit. I, st I don't think you'd be eligible for unemployment. I know. So confusing. Where's Jane? Jane would know these answers. <laughs> Jane's shaking her head no. <laughs> is that because she's just shaking her head no at me personally, or is, is that the answer? We may never know. Okay. Uh, I have never been fired, but looking back, certainly at my first career, I'm like, I would have fired me. I was such a pain. 
Bud's like, yeah. Such Bud remembers this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, like I was in my very first job out of college. I knew everything. Uh, so I was going to revolutionize the advertising agency, uh, agency world. And I had some ideas and everybody who didn't agree with me was obviously wrong. And so like I was, I got, I, I mean, I, there was, there's nothing which was, t- well, there was, there were, there were some maybe insubordination things that I got in trouble for. Um, but I was also, I'm shocked by that. I know, right. I know. Um, but I also was good at actual, my actual job, not necessarily the politics. And so they kept me around, but yeah, definitely looking back. It was also a learning experience for me because I'm like, <laughs> they probably should have fired me. <laughs> so you've been the competent jerk. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 The competent jerk. The, the 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 employee that no company can that they just can't get rid of because they're so competent. In in my defense, I was only a jerk to people who were jerks to me. Is this do I want this? Is this a tit on? for tat situation? No, this like, is still on, by like the way. This, you're, you're you're on tape. Like, yeah, I feel like we had... we've entered some sort of uh, <laughs> jetty that we should perhaps we swim from. out of. Yeah. I mean, like I could I could tell stories about that that first place, but uh, I'm not going to. All right, the last quick thing: the airport scene, Kim. Oh we're, yeah, that airport. Which, scene. which it's like half filmed in an airport. Uh, the airport security line. Yeah, wasn't it interesting when they're talking about um, who he, he was? Uh, George Clooney was giving. What's her name? Natalie. 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 Thank you. Was the um, showing her the ropes of how to behave in airport land where he lives? Um, and he, the thing I found about that was that he was doing a lot of heuristics. Yeah. You know. So he was showing her how to make really quick decisions based on what she was seeing. And she was completely appalled by this. But he just thought that he was giving her the benefit of years of expertise. And I think the reason I brought that up was because it really struck me on how many times we see similar things. And, you know, when younger people in newer ways are coming in when dealing with older people and older ways in organizations. Yeah. Is that that one person's appalling um, shorthand is another person's useful heuristic. There certainly was a lot of talking down or let me tell you the way things actually run here. We also know his strategy to get through the airport to get to his hotel is all about shaving time down. He like makes her get rid of her luggage. That was a terrible piece of luggage. Right. It was. He did her a favor. And, you know, his ways through the airport mirror mine completely. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They they said that his entire wardrobe would that he wore in the movie would have fit in that suitcase. Yeah. And I also there's a small touch where he's taking his shirts off of uh off of wire racks in his home. Mm. And I have done that too because wire racks are really fast to access and you get to see all your clothes in one spot. Speed and efficiency. Yeah. But maybe the problem is his character isn't wrong. Yeah. Is is his character ever wrong? Like ultimately he's right about yeah. a lot of things. Which is very self-congratulatory for the people who don't want to change. Yeah. I mean this movie makes you like him a lot. And it I mean it's George, it's George Clooney. Clooney. <laughs> he's probably one of the few actors who could have pulled this off and right. be charming while being the hatchet man. Right. Right. And it's just his whole life is set up for speed and efficiency. So these stereotypes, which are offensive that he's making, let's be honest. Let's be, let's admit, let's yes, say yeah. that they're yeah. offensive. They are. Um, She's oh. not wrong that they're offensive. I thought you were going to say that they're right. 
We're not going there, Because I was like... That's my other podcast. Anyway. <laughs> okay, but like, are you telling me you're not on the line at TSA, which first of all, I have pre-checked, so I don't have to deal with this anymore, but you're not looking at lines and trying to figure out who's going to get you through fastest? You know... I, I'll be honest. I'm not. Really? I'm really not because I feel like it all kind of comes out in the wash. And so I'm pre-check. I just got global entry. So excited. Ooh. Just did my interview. Fancy. Mm. Very fancy. But, I definitely look, but I've actually learned to look at the TSA agents more. Oh. Who's doing a good job of getting people through and paying attention. And yeah, who looks it. like they hate their job and that they don't care about speed or efficiency, <laughs> which is like everyone at uh, JFK. Oh, yeah, JFK. Oh, my God. That is so terrible. I, uh, I, JFK I, is so depressing that way. All right. So what advice do you have for the characters or the organization in this movie? I'm really glad that Natalie followed her dreams and moved to San Francisco to pursue her career there. I think that was a smart move on her part. I know we haven't gotten a sequel and it doesn't really make sense to have a sequel, but if it was, I think it would actually be really interesting for to follow her in her new job in Silicon Valley as she becomes like disheartened by what she thought was innovative but is actually uh, different, you know, same same stuff but different day. Either that or she becomes Cheryl Sandberg. Maybe. Yeah, that could work. Could happen. Awesome. Yeah, my advice would be for her to take those lessons of sitting in those very difficult rooms, having deep human experiences, and to take that with her to build in building software. Like I would love, like imagine if people who built software had to sit through those kinds of human interactions and understand how technology can't inter mediate everything yeah i think that's a great point yeah i think that that that's what i would hope too is that the people who um having proven in some ways the value of kind of a deeper messier human interaction that people would remember that as they move forward yeah you know because that and that that goes for everybody because you know that as i said 10 years down the line they're going to be doing this on video conference because everybody got used to doing everything on video conference but to think about how you can really bring some humanity into anytime you think about how to bring some humanity into business life i think that that is a worthy lesson yes please all right thanks for listening to work of fiction check us out at workoffiction.fm or tell us what movie organization you think we should analyze next at heart at nobl.io. Did you like this episode of Work of Fiction? If so, we use it. We need a rating. A rating. Leave us a rating on iTunes. Smash that like button. Tell all your friends about it. Tell people you don't know about it. 